You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please look to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21. This morning in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we've come to the 33rd verse of this 21st chapter. We're going to read to verse 46. Matthew 21, beginning with verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you ever read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to seize him, they feared the crowds because they were regarding him to be a prophet. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word this morning. Father in heaven, thank You for the opportunities that we are given this morning to declare the glories of our Savior, Your Son. We need Your help, Lord, to do this. We ask for the gracious, empowering work of the Spirit of God in this next hour that He would help me to preach. And Lord, as we say almost every week, we ask again that You would strengthen us in our inner man to receive the things that will be declared because apart from You teaching us, we don't learn. And so we ask that You would open hearts, that You would enlighten minds, that You would take Your sword in hand and do Your work in our hearts. We gather always as Your church. This is for Your church, Lord, that we might be washed with the pure water 
of Your Word that we would be edified and that we would grow. But we are mindful that some gather with us and some hear us who don't know You. And we ask, Lord, that Your mercy would be given to them, that they would see their need for Your Son and be saved. Lord, work in this next hour we ask on behalf of Your own name, for the glory of Your name, for the glory of Your Son, and for the good of Your people. We will give You thanks for what You do. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior and King and Shepherd, in Jesus' name, Amen. Our words always tell a story. Our words tell the truth, ultimately, as a pattern, tell the truth about our lives. Out of man's mouth comes the abundance of his heart. In Matthew 12, 36, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I mean, at the final judgment, when sinners are judged, all you would need to demonstrate the justness of their judgment is their words. Luke 6.45 says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So out of one's mouth comes the content of his character. What is true of careless words and what is true of evil words is also true of unconsciously accurate words. Unconsciously accurate words. That is, sometimes people unconsciously tell the truth about themselves. They testify against themselves. Even where they would wish not to tell the truth about themselves comes out of their mouth. This was true of Judas. Matthew 26, 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray Him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to Him, you have said so. Now, Judas was not alone. The other disciples, there was, this was going on at that moment. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? But Judas, knowing it was him, had the audacity to pretend that it wasn't. Is it me? And Jesus says, it's you. You just said it. It just came out of your mouth. This was true when Jesus was examined by the high priest in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 62. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. The truth just came out of your mouth. This is who I am. And he goes on to say, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, this is what we see in our verses today. 
Jesus tells a story. He gives a parable. And He asks the chief priests and the elders to supply the ending to the story. He tells the story and then He lets them supply the ending. And the ending that they supply amounts to their own guilty plea. Their own guilty verdict. Because Jesus is going to take what comes out of their mouths and He's going to apply it to them. This is what we're going to see this morning. The judge issuing His verdict through their words. And in that way, He's going to demonstrate that their own condemnation is in their mouth. We'll look at these verses today under four headings. Let me give them to you in advance. We'll walk through them one at a time. Number one, the beginning of the story. Number two, the conclusion of the story. Number three, the application of the story. And then number four, the condemnation from the story. The beginning of the story, the conclusion of the story, the application of the story, and then the condemnation from the story. That was first of all the beginning of the story. Verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, and dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and rented it out to the vine grower, to vine growers, and went on a journey. Now, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now the story that Jesus tells represents something that would have been familiar to these people. It was not uncommon for there to be wealthy men who would purchase land for an investment. Develop it, rent it out as it were for someone else to work it, and have an arrangement where they would receive back on their investment through harvest. That's what he's describing. John MacArthur comments, in New Testament times, the hillsides of Palestine were covered with grape vineyards, which were a mainstay of the economy. It was not unusual for a wealthy man to buy a piece of land and develop it for a vineyard. He would first put a wall of stone or a hedge of briars around it to protect it from wild animals and thieves. He would then make a wine press, sometimes having to cut it out of bedrock. Often the owner would build a tower which would be used as a lookout post against marauders, as shelter for the workers, and as a storage place for seed and implements. So in the story, this man has, has made this investment, and he's put a lot of, a lot of investment into this property. He, he has prepared the vineyard, he has constructed the wall, the wine press is created, a tower is erected, and then he finds tenants. He rents it out to these vine growers. And he goes away. He goes on a journey. This is not something he has to, to, to watch 
firsthand. This is not something he has to sit on. He can go on about his business. And he's going to get a return on his investment as the harvest comes. This is the way it's supposed to work. The vine growers care for the vineyard. They harvest its fruit. Then they pay a portion of the harvest to the landowner. That's how it's supposed to work. But in the story of Christ, that's not how it goes. When the time comes for the landowner to get his return on his investment, the, the portion of the harvest, they don't want to pay up. The vine growers don't want to pay up. The owner of the property sends slaves to collect his portion. And these wicked tenants abuse those servants. Jesus says one was beaten, one was killed, one was stoned. The owner sends another group of slaves, even larger than the first group, and the same thing happens. And so finally he determines to send his son, because surely they will respect his son. But they kill his son. In the story, they kill his son knowing that it's his son. Did you notice what they said? Verse 38, when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, right? They're not mistaken. They don't think this is just another slave. This is the heir. They recognize that he is the son. And yet, not only is it true they want to steal for themselves the portion that belongs to the landowner, they want to steal the whole thing. They want to steal the inheritance. They want the inheritance for themselves. And so they kill his son. This is the story. How does it end? It's our second point, the conclusion of the story. Very interesting. That Jesus gives these religious leaders the opportunity to supply the ending. That's what he does. Verse 40, therefore... When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? You get to finish the story. Given these circumstances, what would you expect? What will they do? What should they meet with from the landowner? By the way, Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable in the hearing of the crowds, Luke 20 verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable. You know, he's teaching the temple. This is an open area, many people listening in. And yet he is concentrated in on these religious leaders and they know it, which is why it says in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. In fact, one of the other gospel writers says, looking at them, I mean, intently looking at them. He says some of the things that he has to say. And so he's teaching in a broad way, but in a way that concentrates on them. And they now have the opportunity to supply the ending. What should happen to people like this? Verse 41, they said to him, he, that is the landowner, will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. The way they finished Christ's story 
emphasize three things. Here's what they recognize in his story. Here's what comes out of their mouths. Number one, they emphasize the depravity of these vine growers, these tenants. They said to him, he will bring those wretches. People who would behave like this are wretched people, evil people. This is a heinous crime committed by wicked people. Second, they emphasize that such people should be destroyed. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They're going to meet with an end that matches their character. Such people deserve destruction. Such people deserve judgment. comes out of their own mouths. Who would murder to steal for themselves what belongs to another? And who would go so far as to murder the heir, to murder the owner's son? Wretched people who deserve a wretched end. Third, they emphasize that such wicked tenants would lose their opportunity to manage the vineyard. They're going to be replaced by other tenants, by vine growers who will do what is right. Verse 41, he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. So these are wretched people who should meet with a wretched end and they're going to lose their opportunity. They're going to be replaced. That's how they finish the story. So now what does Jesus do? Third thing we see, the application of the story. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Do you notice, do you notice, I just want to insert this thought. Do you notice his application is matching how they ended the story and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust he takes their ending which is right i mean they rightly judge the situation but he applies it in a way that makes clear that they are the wicked tenants they are the wicked vine growers. They are self-condemned. If you can recognize such evil in others, then you are certainly held responsible for not recognizing that same wickedness in yourself. Because what you're doing right now matches the story I've just told. That's what Jesus is communicating. Let me just stop for a moment and ask you, what do you judge in other people that you refuse to judge in yourself? What do you recognize in other people that you willfully refuse to recognize in yourself? Are you characterized by the kind of blindness that existed in these religious leaders? Are you someone who has eyes to see what's wrong in everyone else, but you have no eyes to see what's wrong in yourself. 
And by the way, verse 45, we'll talk about this in a moment. They know they're being talked about. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he's speaking about them. I mean, this is an opportunity for you to to listen, isn't it? This is an opportunity for you to recognize what someone else clearly recognizes about you. Is there anybody listening to me? Not only are you able to judge in others what you won't judge in yourself, you won't listen when someone helps you recognize what's wrong in you. You could even know that they're talking about you and you refuse to see it. Now, several things we need to notice as we come to this application. First of all, Jesus makes clear that the point of his story is actually explained in Scripture. This is not just some random story. This is a story that is giving the truth found in the Word of God. This is why he begins his application with these words, did you never read in the Scriptures? Now, a couple of things are are pointed at through those words. One, he points to their ignorance of the Scriptures. Did you never read? Have you never read this? We're talking about chief priests and Pharisees. These are men who are responsible to know the Scriptures and gloried in their knowledge of the Scriptures. And who, in fact, just from the standpoint of of information, knew the Scriptures. You recognize it's possible to know the Bible informationally and be a stranger to its message, to miss its message, to have the information, to have the facts, but to miss the message. Don't ever think just because you can reproduce information from the Bible, you actually have a grasp on its message. Only salvation produces a grasp on its message. And only as we continue to walk in humility before the Lord and in fellowship with the Lord are we going to ever have a grasp on its message. You can know a lot from the Bible and still be a stranger to its message. But not only does the way he begins this point to their ignorance of the Bible, it also makes clear that the key to understanding his story is found on the pages of Scripture. Which means that the Bible is talking about Jesus. The Old Testament Scriptures, because Jesus is going to be the point of the stories we'll see, the Old Testament Scriptures speak of Him. And He's going to make that point by making use of Psalm 118, which they would have understood to be a messianic psalm. Something about Psalm 118 is pointing forward to the Messiah. They would have understood that. But before we get to Christ's use, by the way, I say they would have understood that because you remember when Christ made His entrance into the city of Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, people are crying out things from Psalm 118. The people, as they had this messianic expectation, had already been taught and understood that in Psalm 118 you have a a looking forward to the Messiah. So when Christ begins to use this psalm, explain his story, he understood what he's saying. But before we get to Psalm 118, which Jesus quotes in verse 42, I want you to ask yourself why he would choose a story that involved a vineyard. 
Why does he tell a parable that involves a vineyard? And the answer to that is the, the vine metaphor was something that the people were very familiar with, would have recognized as having reference to Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, you find Israel being described by the, by the Psalms and by the prophets, making use of a vine metaphor. So our Lord is telling a story. In fact, His story is very much like Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1-7. through 7. He's telling a story that they would have recognized as a message related to Israel. Israel is the Lord's vine. And you can trace the use of this metaphor chronologically throughout the Old Testament and see that the Old Testament writers build on each other. They take the initial information and the Lord through progressive revelation adds something more and adds something more and adds something more. And now, now our Lord is actually building on what has been previously revealed. Where does it all begin chronologically in the Old Testament? It begins with the 80th Psalm. Asaph is the author of the 80th Psalm. We don't know exactly when it was written, but it appears he's writing probably from Jerusalem after the ten northern tribes have been taken captive in 722 B.C. because he is desiring merciful restoration and blessing. Judgment has come. After all of God's work with Israel, He has judged her to be unfaithful to the covenant. And so this 80th Psalm pictures her beginning all the way up to the point at which he's writing. Psalm 80 verse 8 says this, You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and then you planted it. You cleared the ground before it and took deep root and filled the land. You don't just plant the vine, you cleared around it. You took care with it to develop it. Verse 10, the mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. I'm talking about the growth of Israel up to the time of David. But then the psalmist writes, why have you broken down its hedges? so that all who pass that way pick its fruit. A boar from the forest devours it, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, return now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see, and visit this vine, even the sapling which your right hand has planted, and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. Israel is God's son. Oh, would you have mercy on Israel. Isaiah picks up that theme. He advances it. When Isaiah uses that metaphor, now what's wrong in Israel is that the fruit is bad. Isaiah 5, verse 1, Let me now sing for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he also hewed out a wine vat in it. All the elements that our Lord's story has in it. Do you hear that? This is Isaiah chapter 5. All the same elements. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it. 
Then he hoped for it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done in it? Why, when I hoped for it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds to rain no rain on it. The vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel. You hear that? The vineyard is Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he hoped for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Psalm 80, picturing the history of Israel in terms of a vine. Isaiah 5, Israel is the Lord's vineyard. But now the fruit is bad. And the result is the vineyard is going to be destroyed. Hosea used the same metaphor. Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He doesn't mean that in a positive sense. He goes on to say he produces fruit for himself. The more abundant his fruit, the more altars he abounded. The better his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. What's wrong with the fruit of Israel? What's wrong is faith is absent. Now they must bear their guilt. Yahweh will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Idolatry has made its way into the people of God. They prove faithless. The fruit is not just bad, now it's pagan. And Jeremiah advances the metaphor yet another step by emphasizing th that pagan way of living. This is why the exile is coming. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20. For long ago, I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every green tree, you have lain down as a harlot. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely true seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? You're not the vine I planted. Now you're a degenerate demonstration of something foreign. Ezekiel was the last prophet to use this metaphor. And he, he goes even a step further now. He doesn't talk about fruit. He doesn't talk about the vine. Now he talks about the wood of the vine that is, that is good for nothing but fire. Good for nothing but judgment. Ezekiel 15, verse 1, Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? I mean, what is the, what is the good of the wood of a vine? Is what he's saying. If it has been put into the fire for fuel... And the fire has consumed both of its ends and its middle part has been charred. Is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it still be made into anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, 
which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will give my face to be against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I set my face against them. Thus I will give over the land to desolation, because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord Yahweh. So when our Lord tells this story about the vineyard, that is carefully prepared. He is using biblical, familiar terms. Just as he had done when he cursed the fig tree, so he's doing now with this parable of the vineyard. He is, he is linking up his stories with Israel. But, but, but here's what's interesting about his story. The problem in his story, this is where it differs from Isaiah 5, the problem in his story is not the fruit of the vineyard. It's not fruitlessness. It's not bad fruit. The problem in his story is with the caretakers, the vine growers, the tenants. Our Lord is not saying there's no problem in the nation. He's already demonstrated there's a problem in His cleansing of the temple. But what he wants to emphasize in his story is the wickedness of the men who should be shepherds and guides to the nation. Judgment is coming upon Israel and their religious leaders stand at the head of the problem. He's telling a story about them, you see, and they understand it in verse 45. This is about us. So the application of his story is aimed at the very ones who've supplied the end of the story. Out of their mouths comes their own condemnation. As he takes the end of the story as they have given it, and he says, you know what? What's just come out of your mouth matches the Scriptures if you're listening. It tells the truth about you if you're listening. This is why he's using the vineyard illustration because that illustration points to what's going on with him and with the nation and with those leaders. But then he switches the metaphor, doesn't he? He moves from the vineyard metaphor to a building. When he says, did you never read the scriptures? He clues them in on the fact the whole story is wrapped up in a biblical theme. But now let me point you, point you to something specific in the scriptures. The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have you read that? You never read that? Explaining that the judgment of His parable has to do with the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. The judgment on the wicked tenants is connected now to what's happening with the Messiah. Psalm 118, what do we know about it? It's part of a section of the Psalms referred to as the Egyptian Hillel. has to do with reflection on what God has done with Israel, leading them out of Egypt. These were songs sung around the time of the Passover. Psalm 118 is the last of the Psalms belonging to that little section of the Psalms, the Egyptian Hillel. We don't know the author of the psalm. We don't know the occasion upon which it was written. We don't know. Perhaps it had to do with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Perhaps it had to do with the rebuilding of the temple. 
But a part of that psalm reflects back on what God has done with Israel out of Egypt. And in that context, the, the rejected stone that becomes the chief cornerstone could be Israel, but it's also possible that in that context, the rejected stone that becomes the chief cornerstone is Moses. Again, MacArthur comments, he says, now, this passage in verse 22 has a historical basis which is paralleled in its major features by analogy with the rejection of Christ who came to deliver, save the nation. Moses' experience as a type of Christ pictured Christ's rejection. On at least three occasions, Moses, who would be the stone, was rejected by the Jews, the builders, as their God-sent deliverer, chief cornerstone. He says, for example, see Exodus 2, but then also cross-reference Acts 7, 35, etc. So MacArthur recognizes that perhaps Moses was a picture of Christ in Psalm 118. James Montgomery Boyce says, Psalm 118 is long, consisting of ten stanzas plus an opening theme verse and two closing ones. It begins with a summons to Israel to praise God, repeating the second line of verse 1, His love endures forever. Next it describes the anguish of one who was enslaved. In my anguish I cried to the Lord and He answered by setting me free, verse 5, and the danger He faced from the nearby hostile nations. All the nations surrounded me, verse 10. I was pushed back and about to fall, verse 13. This is followed by remembrance of victories given to Israel by God. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous, verse 15. There's a call for opening the temple gates for the righteous to enter. Open for me the gates of righteousness, verse 19. A grateful recognition that those who had been rejected have been heard and delivered from their foreign oppression. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, verse 22. Then a final festive procession with bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar, verse 27. When we trace this progression, we understand why Psalm 118 is the last and climactic psalm in the Egyptian Hillel. Its parts suggest the passage of Israel from slavery in Egypt to the security and joy of Mount Zion. Parts of the psalm echo the Exodus narrative. For example, verse 14 is a direct quote of Exodus 15, verse 2, from Moses' victory song after the deliverance of the people from Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea. Close quote. So Psalm 118, taking us from the Egyptian deliverance all the way up to festive praise at the temple. But in that context, you have this stone which was rejected, yet it was the Lord's chosen capstone, cornerstone. Interesting, when Stephen is preaching his sermon that gets him killed, tracing the unfaithful history of the nation Israel. In Acts 7.35, listen to this, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Doesn't the whole rhythm of that sound very much like what we're hearing in Psalm 118. This man, this one whom you rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, God sent as both ruler and redeemer. Moses, serving as a type, 
I think that's right, of the prophet like Moses, who's promised to come, the Messiah, who is Jesus. So, using the vineyard, this has to do with Israel. There's a long history of that in the Old Testament. Using Psalm 118, this has to do with the Messiah, God and His Messiah, who is pictured in the deliverance from Egypt in the man Moses. But in the story that Jesus tells, the one who is murdered at the end, the one who is rejected and murdered, is the vineyard owner's son. This wicked treatment is the wicked treatment of the son. What is Jesus doing? He is in a very sort of quiet way. He's claiming sonship. These tenants reject the owner's son. But by using Psalm 118, Jesus makes clear their rejection will not be the end of the story. This one whom they're rejecting was chosen by God. The Messiah is God's Messiah. The Christ is the Christ of God. This is language you find in the New Testament. The Christ of God, which is to say chosen by God, the Son of God. Chosen by God. To come as our Redeemer and then to be rejected and killed, but then to be raised from the dead and to triumph forevermore and to be glorified forevermore. This is God's doing, you see. Psalm 118 speaks of it. Luke 2.26 says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Luke 9.20, Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Luke 23.35, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Who is the Messiah? He is the Christ of God, the one chosen by God. The Lord's doing, you see, determines the Messiah. But the story of Jesus makes clear the one who's chosen, the one who is the Messiah, the one who's the prophet like Moses, is the Son of God. The Son of God. The Son of the owner. By the way, how does the metaphor function, this building metaphor? How does it function? Well, buildings at that time were constructed in such a way that you had a very important stone that would be set in the foundation by which all the other angles of the building would be set. That's the cornerstone. And so the builders would be very careful about the stone selected to serve as that cornerstone. Had to be right, had to be, we could even say perfect, in order for the angles of that building to be set properly. And so, you know, there would be stones suggested as the cornerstone. No, that one is not, is, will not fit. That one will not serve us. Well, the, the Psalm 118 declares this metaphor where a stone is presented as the cornerstone and the builders reject it. But the very stone they reject becomes the cornerstone. And so the Lord takes this stone that He has chosen as the foundation cornerstone for a building that He is erecting and the builders, in this case the tenants in Christ's story, reject it, but it will be the cornerstone because this is the Lord's doing. So with all that in mind, 
Now we're able to identify the elements of the story that Jesus tells. He points them to the Scriptures, gives them Psalm 118, the entire vineyard story, takes us to Isaiah 5. And if you're paying attention, and they knew the Scriptures, at least intellectually, you're able to identify the elements of the story. So let's identify the elements. The Father, who is the owner of the vineyard, who sends His Son, who is that? That's God. The vineyard, what does it represent? Israel. The wicked tenants who end up murdering the son, who murder the slaves that are sent to them, in some cases abuse others, but then murder the son, who are the wicked tenants? They are, in this story, the religious leaders of Israel, the very ones who've pronounced the end of the story. You're the wicked tenant. The slaves whom the owner sends to gather what belongs to him, who are the slaves? They are the prophets. They are the messengers of God who've come to Israel over time on behalf of the truth of God. In fact, in the very next chapter, Matthew 23, actually two chapters, verse 34, Matthew 23, verse 34, Jesus says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, the blood of righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bacariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. I mean, if you're just listening to him, he's explaining these, these parts of the story. These slaves are the messengers sent to Israel over time. By the way, doesn't this point to the patience of God? Even as in the story Jesus tells, the father keeps sending these slaves before he finally sends his son. So God has sent messengers to Israel over the course of her history before he finally sends his son. Who is the son? Jesus Messiah. What is the killing of the son, the rejection of the stone, using the terminology of Psalm 118? It's the, it's the crucifixion of Jesus. It's the ultimate arrest and rejection and murder of Jesus. The previous section, Jesus declared, you're hypocrites. This section, Jesus says, it's even worse. You're murderers. But that rejected stone becomes the chief cornerstone. What does that mean? It speaks of the victory of the resurrected Son of God. And this will be what God does. No matter what you have planned, no matter what your wicked intentions are, God's plans reign. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. What about the replacement of the tenants? In our Lord's story, He says, or in their answer, which He affirms, they said to Him, verse 41, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay Him the proceeds at the proper seasons. They're going to be replaced. What does that speak of? In fact, our Lord gives an explanation, doesn't He? Verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. How do we understand this? I think what He is talking about is a future Israel that will produce the fruit that the landowner always intended. A redeemed Israel still coming in the future. In, in the ultimate sense, 
This is going to be fulfilled. Look at Matthew 23. Look at, at verse 39. Our Lord goes on this interaction with these religious leaders to, 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 the, to the end of chapter 23. And listen to how our Lord ends this interaction. Verse 1 of chapter 24 says, and coming out of the temple. So, so this, is, this is going on all the way until Jesus leaves the temple. End of chapter 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. That's the judgment he's talking about. Verse 39, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they were crying out at the time of his triumphal entry which the Pharisees took issue with. Where does that come from? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where does that come from? It comes from Psalm 118. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. There will come a day when I return. You won't see me until one day you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name. This is a day of great salvation, you see. This is what Romans 11 is talking about. A day of an outpouring of salvation upon ethnic Israel, but in a way that the ones who enter into the kingdom are a regenerate Israel. The kingdom of God, you representing God's work on the earth is going to be taken away from you. One day, though, it's going to be fulfilled in a believing Israel. What, what, what happens until then? The Lord's kingdom work is on display in another people led by believing Jews at its outset, at its foundation level, the apostles, who were all Jewish men who came to genuine faith in the true Messiah. They're going to replace you. The true representatives of the kingdom of God on this earth will not be Pharisees and chief priests and scribes, but the apostles of the very one whom you're rejecting. And God's kingdom work on the earth will not be represented in Israel, but in a people who represent a new man, a new nation made up of the nations, that is the church. Taken away from Israel, given to the church until the time when it, the, the fruit of the vineyard is seen in a redeemed Israel at the end of the age. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you have, who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And he's talking about the apostles. The result of their covenant unfaithfulness is the new covenant and I mean, this is not plan B. This is planned from all eternity. But this, this is where the transition happens. And now the Lord is making use of His church to make His name known throughout the earth until the day that Jesus comes again. And when He comes, we will witness a grand outpouring of salvation upon ethnic Israel. The vineyard owner will have his portion. The vineyard owner will see his, the fruit of his vineyard. 1 Peter 2.4 says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, 
you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. I mean, what is this house that's being built with Jesus at the cornerstone? The answer is it's a temple indwelt by the Spirit of God. And you and I are living stones being added to that temple. The Lord is building His church. We are men and women who have the Spirit of God so that this is a living place where God's presence is represented on earth and the people whom He has redeemed. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what our Lord is teaching. And by the way, if you look back at verse 42 of Matthew 21, this came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You and I can see what the Lord has done. And we rejoice in it. It is wonderful in the eyes of God's people. But there's one other element of the story that we've got to identify. The Father, God, the vineyard, Israel, the wicked tenants, the religious leaders of Israel, the slaves, God's messengers to Israel throughout time, the Son, Jesus, Messiah, the killing of the Son, the rejection of the stone, the rejected stone becoming the chief cornerstone, the victory of the resurrected Son of God, the replacement of the tenants, God's choice to manifest His kingdom in a fruitful Israel, but until then, His church. That cornerstone is a stumbling block that leads to self-destruction, yet at the same time, the judge who brings final destruction. Verse 44 in our text, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Do you see the two parts of this? Men and women who stumble over this cornerstone and they are broken to pieces. Self-judgment as a result of rejecting this one who is the chief cornerstone. But, but the judgment is not just self-judgment. One day this same stone will fall on those who reject Him and will scatter them like dust. Isaiah 8.14 says, And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Daniel 2.44, Daniel given a, a vision of a kingdom that's going to wipe out all other kingdoms and fill the earth. And in Daniel 2.44 says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, 
and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be after this? The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. This statue that represents successive kingdoms, but this stone not cut by hands that will shatter everything else and replace it. This is the condemnation. This leads to the condemnation of the story. The beginning of the story, the conclusion of the story, the application of the story, finally notice the, the condemnation that comes from the story. Verse 45, And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard His parables, they understood that He was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to seize Him, they feared the crowds because they were regarding Him to be a prophet. They condemn themselves, don't they? Out of their mouths, they demonstrate they're able to recognize wicked tenets and wicked plans and the just destruction that such people should meet with. And they even recognize that He's applying it to them, yet they refuse to acknowledge that they are those wicked tenants. See, this is the difference between them and David. Remember God sends Nathan to David? And Nathan tells David this story about this man who had all, the, all this flock, but he takes this one little ewe lamb, makes it his own, and Nathan says, you are that man. David? David says, such a man. He should be destroyed. He should be judged. Nathan says, you are that man, David. But what does David do? He repents. 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And what happens where there's repentance? There's mercy. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David acknowledges his sin. Nathan pronounces the forgiveness of God upon his sin. But in this case, these men don't repent. They refuse to repent fighting against a conclusion that they themselves have vocalized. How sad it is that people can know that they are the man, but they still will not repent. So let me ask you as we finish, do you recognize Jesus in the terms in which He's presented Himself? Do you see Him as the Son you know, when Caiaphas says, tell us, are you the Son of God? It may have been from this very encounter that he understands that Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Do you recognize Jesus as the Son? The Savior? The stumbling block? The judge? Is He, in your eyes, who He proclaimed Himself to be? Do you recognize what the judgment should be for people who shamefully reject God's opportunities that He's given them and reject His Son? What should such people receive who would reject the Son of God, the, the only Savior that men have been, been given, the, the one who's willing to lay down His life to save sinners like you and me? You reject Him. What should you get? Do you recognize it? And if you recognize what such people should get... Have you examined yourself in the light of that judgment? 
that God would send His only Son from heaven to earth, born of a virgin, live a sinless life, give Himself as a substitute on the cross, suffer not only the worst sort of human cruelty one could imagine on a cross, but the wrath of God upon Himself to deliver us from all that, that calls for the wrath of God in our lives, taking our place to set us free, then set before us, having been raised from the dead, able to save us to the uttermost, set before us, and we're exhorted to turn from our sins and trust in Him. What do people deserve who say, no, I will not have Him? What do they deserve? And if you can pronounce the judgment for that, I'm asking, have you looked at yourself? Have you received Him or have you rejected Him? What have you done with the Son of God? What will you do with the Son of God? And for every man, woman, and child who has received the Son of God, I would just ask, is what the Lord has done, is it wonderful in your eyes? This cornerstone that's rejected by most of the world, but God has made him the chief stone. It's the Lord's doing. Is that marvelous? Is that wonderful in your eyes? Do you know a joy in your heart this very day because by the grace and mercy of God, you have seen what most of the world willingly turns a blind eye to. By the mercy of God, you have seen yourself a sinner through and through who deserves nothing from God but judgment. Yet you've also seen that God is willing to have mercy on sinners like you so that you turn from your sin and self to trust in God's Son who is the rejected stone yet the chief cornerstone by God's own doing and it is marvelous in your eyes and you have trusted in Him for salvation and life. Is that you? And if it hasn't been up to this day, would it be you this day? Would you right where you are cry out to the Son of God for everlasting life, turning from your sin to embrace Him as your Savior and Lord and Shepherd. Will you obey the command of the Gospel and be saved by believing in Jesus? The church would say, Amen. Father in Heaven, thank You for this story that so clearly demonstrated for those listening to our Lord on that day and demonstrates for us listening to our Lord on this day the fact that our only hope is Jesus, that He is indeed rejected by the very people who need Him. And yet for as many as will receive Him, what is granted to them is eternal life in, in Christ. Thank You for the joy of knowing that one day the whole world will see and acknowledge what we have come to know. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Christ, that He is Lord to the glory of Your great name. And one day, Lord, we will all for the rest of eternity rejoice in Your mercy to us in Christ. Hallelujah. It's what we declare as we consider Your mercy to us. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for life. Thank You for forgiveness. Thank You for salvation. In His name, in Jesus' name.
Amen.